after Jesus was resurrected, after he was lifted up to heaven, and it says in Acts chapter 1 that the 120 believers gathered together in Jerusalem as Jesus asked them to do. And of the 120 believers, the book of Acts mentions some by name and others by group. It says that the 11 disciples were there. You'd hope so. It says that the women were there, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it says that the brothers of Jesus were there. Now, the interesting thing is the fact that these people were together as one group. And it's amazing when you consider what things were like only a couple of months before with these people. Six weeks before this point in time, Jesus' disciples were fighting and competing with one another. Women were not seen as disciples in the culture of that day, and yet here they are together with this group. And as to the brothers of Jesus, it was these same brothers who made fun of Jesus and who tried to put an end to Jesus' public ministry in John 7. They actually say, Come on, you're a bit, you're, that's enough, that's enough, brother. You need to come home. You've, you've been doing something that's sending you nuts. These same brothers are there. Now, it doesn't specify the next fact, but among the 120 who were gathered, you would have also had people who had formerly been seen as the scum of society. Corrupt tax collectors, drunks, prostitutes. At least they were these things until they met Jesus. You would have also found homeless people amongst them and the poor. Strangely enough, within this group of people, there were others who were at the opposite end of the societal scale, rich people. And surprisingly, a couple of religious leaders were there. Though at this point in time, they would have probably lost all their credibility because they chose to follow Jesus instead of being like the rest of the wealthy and the privileged. People like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who put their high status on the line. But there was three more groups of people who would have been there, though they were not mentioned. At least not yet. And that is children, youth, and elderly people. They would have been there. We know this because of what happened ten days later at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, it says that all the believers were all together when the Holy Spirit came down and gave them the ability to speak in different languages. And when the massive crowds of people, many of whom were from foreign countries, ran to see what all the commotion was about, and they wanted to know how did all these different kinds of people, many of them who were uneducated, how were they able to speak different languages with so much eloquence, Peter... The fisherman, who I imagine is probably the, the roughest, least eloquent guy who was part of the disciples, he steps to the front of the crowd to tell them what happened. And he reminds those who are listening of a prophecy that was given over 400 years before that day by the prophet Joel. And it says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even in those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. So the prophecy says that God's spirit would be poured out on everyone, both men and women, 
both the young and the old, both rich and poor. And the fact that people were hearing this in at least 12 different languages tells us that it also included people from every culture. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of people that we could talk about today from this section. There's a lot of ways we stereotype people and treat people differently because of how we group people. But a lot of people may be surprised about this, but we, us, we actually live in a very segregated society. This happens not just in developing countries, not just in other Western countries, but right here in Australia. Not only in secular society, but here in church. And the reality is we often stereotype and prejudge people according to age. Now, some of you may be aware that this is an area where I am not only passionate about, but it's an area that falls within my expertise. Though I haven't really had much of a chance to talk about it here at Springwood, ironically enough. I've done seminars and sermons in a lot of other places, even on other continents, but today I'm finally going to talk about it here. Now, for those who don't know, my PhD was on three topics that came together, well-being, discipleship, and intergenerational relationships. Now, that last one, intergenerational relationships, what it means is relationships that we have with people who are older and younger than ourselves. Even more specifically, I looked at these sorts of relationships between people who were not related to each other. I've been to churches where people are like, oh, my church is really intergenerational. And I said, really? Um, what if you don't count the people you're related to? Oh, um, yeah, I guess not so much. They don't count. <laughs> if you're not talking to your, your kids or your grandparents or your nieces and nephews, that's another big issue that you have personally. <laughs> that should come naturally. But if you think about it, most of the squabbles that will happen in churches are over issues where one or more generations disagree with something that another generation does or values. My passion is helping churches to be places that are diverse and unified at the same time. If you want me to tell you more about this, I'm happy to run some seminars here on it, but there's too much to cover in just a sermon. So back to what I said before. We have a tendency to prejudge and separate from each other based on our age. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment regarding how we're divided. We're actually divided by two dimensions. First one is by space. When town planning takes place, when a state development is happening, did you know that in an effort to tailor neighborhoods in a way so that the neighborhood will be attractive and have everything that the residents might need, they will design a suburb to suit people from a particular stage in life? Something most people know, but think about it. Estates and suburbs are designed often with families in mind, ensuring there are playgrounds and schools to accommodate children as well as freeway access so that the parents can get to work on time. For those who are either single or childless, or their kids have left home, flats, townhouses, and apartment complexes are built close to universities, 
entertainment, and bustling nightlife. And then we build retirement villages, retirement apartments, nursing homes for elderly groups with hospitals, chemists, and even cemeteries nearby. So even where you're buried is convenient for you. Now, the reason why we do this is because financially it makes sense. But at what cost? It might be convenient, but it prevents us often from mixing with people of different ages. Here's the second dimension. We're also often separated by time. Children, teens, and even babies are sent off to schools and daycare facilities. Adults go to work often. Young adults go to university, college, or TAFE. Retirees go to bowling greens, golf courses, cruises, or at least they used to. We're segregated even according to how we spend time each day. Now, there's some good reasons for this. There are some things that are learned better when we're with people who are at the same level of it as ourselves. It's hard to get something done if you're with people who have different goals or different perspectives. Our kids probably should not be at work with us. That is one thing that COVID isolation taught us. But there are some things that we actually do better and we learn better from when we are actually in a diverse environment. And our history recalls this. It, we know that it wasn't always the way it is now. In fact, there's a saying that I think most people in the room could finish for me. It takes a village to raise a child. In Old Testament times, it was law that parents were to pass on their history and God's commandments to their children. It was law. It was a parent's job, not a teacher's job, to teach values and to supply every need to children. And by the way, it still isn't a teacher's job to do those things. I'm here for you guys. When a king or a priest had asked the people to come together for a meeting, the women and children and elderly were expected to be there as well. Why? Because though they had different roles to the men who, weren't, who were just in the right age category at that time, they were still seen as an important part of society even though they had different roles. In the New Testament, people gathered in homes for church. Who lives in homes? Both the very young and the very old. It's not like we kicked grandma out when we're having a church meeting. In New Testament times, we wanted everyone to be there. Even a hundred years ago, it was common to have children, parents, grandparents, maybe even aunts and uncles and great-grandparents living in the same home or maybe just across the road from each other. But life is very different now, isn't it? Now, for those of us who don't have extended family, practically speaking, big camp is a bit painful because those who go to Big camp who don't have the extended families, we watch the benefits of large extended family groups who are taking care of each other and doing stuff, while those of us who have no family around must somehow manage the kids and meetings by ourselves. I can only imagine how much 
worse and more challenging it would be for a single parent to be going without extended family. Our brokenness in society makes our life much harder. In fact, one of the few, if only, places where you will find a group of people of all different ages and backgrounds who are spending time together, who are focusing on the same thing at the same time in society today is here in church. This is one of the last places in society where you'll have people with all different points of view who actually come together to focus. And coming together to watch a movie, that's not actually community. Community is where we all actually have the same goals and we work together and we talk together. Why, why do we do that? Why is that? Why does the church continue to bring all the generations together, or at least why should they? Well, there's a few reasons. And they're good reasons that unfortunately many people today ignore. Let's start with how Jesus treated people, no matter how old they were. When the disciples were trying to stop children from talking and being blessed by Jesus because they thought his work was far too important, Jesus gave them a good hard reality check. He was actually upset with them. And he said, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. You see, Jesus saw everyone, including children, as equally important in God's eyes. But most people, and I'm putting myself in this, most people, including us churchgoers, we often, not always, maybe there's some exceptions to this, but often, we often treat kids as though they are preventing us from doing what is important, even at church. Sure, we have Sabbath school for kids, and sometimes we throw in a children's story during the service so no one can say that we neglect them at church. But how do we usually treat them? How many adults take the time to have a conversation with someone young? How many adults take the time to talk to teenagers they are not related to? You can't count your own kids or nieces or nephews and grandkids in this. Like I said, if you're not talking to your own family members, that's a much bigger issue than this. But how many people who are not your age group, who you're not related to, do you actually talk to when you come to church? Some people get annoyed if young people so much as make a sighing sound in church. Does anyone remember that when you were young? You make a sound or you ask someone a question, you try to be quiet, and some cranky person looks at you as though you just smashed a window. Shh! I remember that. That's one of the reasons it took so long for me to want to go to church when I was young. But the question is, do our kids, do our teens consider the church that they go to as their church, or do they consider it their parents' church? Do we involve them in ministry? Do we ask the opinions of our teenagers when we make decisions as a church? I've been to churches who decide to move teens out of their Sabbath school rooms without even consulting them. I've been to some churches where they won't even put some, they won't give a key to someone under the age of 30, even though they have people in their 20s who are running corporations in their church. 
ridiculous. Or people who think the kids should have no say in how Sabbath schools are decorated. I mean, it's their room. Who's, the, who's it for? How would we like it if we came to church and someone told you, you need to worship elsewhere today? Someone might say, but they're young, they just need to do what they're told. My reply to that is, is that how Jesus asks us to treat people? And they're included in, as people. Think about who do you talk to most at church? I would say, and I'm thinking of myself, people your own age. And the research I did actually found this was true. Why? It's not for a bad reason. It's because as humans, we're drawn to people who have similar perspectives to us. But the reason why it's important to talk to those who are of different age groups, if kids and teens only have conversations with older people they are related to, then how can we say that the church is discipling them? Because here's the thing. One of the reasons why when kids hit 12, 12, 13, 14, they get a bit rebellious, the reason is, through the research, is that because they get to an age where subconsciously they go, I have learned lots from my family members, my parents. I need to learn from some other adults. But unfortunately in society, there are no other adults aside from teachers who talk to them. So who do they go for advice instead? Their peers, who have just as good of an idea of how things should happen as them. We need to mentor those especially who we're not related to. And if we do talk to them, what do we talk to them about? Is the only interaction we have with them telling them off for something that they are doing wrong? Or it goes the other way, young people, if the only interaction you have with someone is complaining, what kind of a picture does that paint the person as? If that's our only interaction with young people is saying, don't run, don't eat in here, don't do that, if, that, if that's the only thing, why are we surprised that they don't want to be around us? You can't get money out of an ATM unless you put money into it to begin with. And that's how relationships work. If a farmer put millions of dollars into harvesting equipment, and I know that they do this, and they imagine we have a farmer putting millions of dollars into harvesting equipment because the harvest is going to be great. But what if we have this farmer who's not really thinking straight? If that same farmer puts millions into harvesting equipment but doesn't put hardly anything into the seeding or the watering equipment or the fertilizing equipment, should they be surprised when they get very little harvest, even though they have this great harvesting combine, should they be surprised that the harvest is very little? We sort of go, yeah, of course, it's ridiculous. You have to put in when they're young, too. Why don't we do that with people? We put so much into harvesting, but nothing into growing. What's easier to do? To convince someone who has left the church as an adult and come back to church, or do a really good job and do whatever we can to make sure the young people would never want to leave? Which is easier to do? 
I can tell you, convincing people who left the church is not an easy thing to do. It is really not. But we often so do, do that with our teens and young people. They need mentors. They need encouragers. They need people who will trust them and defend them. Now, I, have, I need two volunteers. We're going to do an object lesson here. How about someone young and someone old? Because that's the topic, right? They have to be really strong, though. Who can do it? Evie, do you want to come up? All right. Someone older who can take on a lot more weight. Come on. All right, come on down. Thank you so much. I'm going to give you this. Can you hold that all right? You might want to use two hands. Matt, you're a tradie, so this will be nothing. You can probably launch it to the other side of the room. Um, can you both lift it over your heads? Cool. So is it, can you feel that it is heavy? Do you, do you think you could keep it lifted over your head for 10 minutes straight? No. Do you think you could go several kilometers with carrying it without sweating? Not really. Even though you can lift it pretty easily now, having it for a long time, it would get pretty tiring, wouldn't it? Even the, Matt's got eight kilos. All right, thanks so much. Uh, actually, one more question. How well do you think you would go? You said you could, you could go a fair distance holding them. You'd get tired. How would you go at swimming with one of these? Do <laughs> you think you could swim very well holding them? Sink pretty well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for that. So, thank you very much. Good job. In Mark 9.42, this is what Jesus says, and he says this in three out of four Gospels. If anyone causes these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be thrown into the sea. Now, they're holding these. And they said, yeah, swimming, yeah, that is a no-go. And we often read this text and we, we say, this is how God feels about abusing children. Anyone who actually hits kids or does anything abusive, it's not actually talking about that. I mean, sure, that'd be really upset, but this is not talking about abuse. It's not talking about a violence. It says anyone who causes them to stumble. What that means is anyone who causes a child or a young person to have a poor view of what God looks like, that's what he thinks. This is not taught... Sure, violence he definitely would be against, but he's actually talking about... The way you portray God at church or anywhere else, if kids think that's what God is about, this is what he thinks. And the disciples didn't get in trouble because they were hurting children. They got in trouble because they were stopping children from seeing what Jesus was actually like. And the, what implications does it hold for us at church when we dismiss or we ignore the young or we just pour negative stuff on them. And this is the young. This is talking about young adults as well. Anyone young or anyone new who comes into the church, what picture 
of a church community are we giving to people? Now, just to give you an idea, this is what a millstone was like. That makes these things look like nothing. A millstone could be anywhere from 200 kilograms to several tons. That's pretty forceful words that Jesus says. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus often tells adults that they need to have faith like kids do. Which is why it's so strange that many people see children as burdens when the reality is that they actually help us to become more like Jesus. The research I actually did, it actually validated that. The, the summary, if you want to take the eight, 85,000 word dissertation that I wrote, if you want to squeeze it into a nutshell, it's that when we follow what Jesus says, and when we mix with other people, we are healthier. When we mix with people who are different to us, when we mix with people from other generations, when we mix with people who are from other generations, we are actually better Christians. Which is why it's, it's ridiculous sometimes when there's divisions in churches and new churches start because they want everyone to be the same the research actually shows we actually are better Christians when we mix with people who we don't agree with. Now, I'm not here only to focus on how the kids are treated. I'm here to talk about being intergenerational, which means talking about all ages. Now, in most churches, there are at least four different adult generations. This is something that's from my seminars. I don't know if I should ask a show of hands. Some people might, want, might not want people to know this, but though, if there's anyone here who was born before 1945, anyone? <laughs> they may not want... Oh, there's a couple. Oh. They're known as the traditionalists. Um, those, then you have the baby boomers who are born between 1945 and 1965. Who are the baby boomers? Put your hand up. Happy to have you guys here. We always know when there's baby boomers around, by the way. <laughs> they always let us know that they're here. Always. <laughs> um, then there's Gen X. Um, from 1965 to 1980. Who here is Gen X? Woo! We're like, yeah, because we're Gen X. Um, <laughs> Then there's Millennials or Gen Ys from born 1980 to 1995. Who's the Millennials here? Put your hands up. Awesome. Glad to have you guys here too. Then there's Gen Z from born between 95 and 210. Put your hands up. I can hear you guys. Awesome. And then there's Gen Alpha. These are the kids. Anyone who was born after 2010. Put your hands up if you were born before 2010, kids. They're here because I can hear them all the time, which is a good thing. If you can't hear kids in a church, it means your church is dead, by the way. Um, and they're Gen Alpha. So here's the thing. In church, often, arguments and fighting takes place between young adults, middle-aged adults, and senior adults, often. And the traditionalists, this is research, this is generalizing, but traditionalists often, not always, but often get upset if you try to change anything in church. Baby boomers 
tend to get upset if things aren't done professionally or if they're not functioning as they should. They get really upset about that. Gen Xers will get, tend to get upset when we aren't seeing the church make a difference in the community. That really gets Gen Xers upset. And millennials and Gen Zs, they'll get upset at seeing all the arguing and hypocrisy, and they'll just leave, and they won't come back because they can't stand the arguing. Um, can I get another volunteer? You, sh- you want to come? No, I, I shouldn't be biased. I won't pick my own kids even though. Anyone? Yeah, all right. Come on up. Come on down. I just need one, and you may not want to volunteer after this. Um, is, is there, is there, um, how you going? Good. Good, good. Is there any part of your body that you don't really use much? Would you say, what part of your body do you not use much at all? Do you use your baby finger much, your little toe? So... Would, would, would you mind if we got rid of it? I'm... Because you, you, you're not using it anyway. Would you want to get rid of them? No. Okay, you can, sit, you can sit down. Okay, no, that's strange. I mean, most people want to lose a bit of weight, but that's... Um, I want to lose weight, but I don't really want to lose weight by having amputation. I'm not that kind of a doctor, though. I think there's a couple doctors here that actually could do surgery. Um, But the point is, we don't want to lose parts of our body that don't seem to do anything. In 1 Corinthians 12, 18 to 21, it says, Our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange would a body be if it only had one part? How strange would a body be if it was only one generation of people? Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. There might be people here like myself who'd like to lose weight, but there's probably no one in this room who actually wants to have weight cut off of us. But just like every part of your body is important and you wouldn't want to have anything amputated, every person in the church, no matter what age they are, are important to the church. Amen? No matter how old someone is, they have a job to do. They have a special ministry that Jesus has appointed to them. In fact, in 1 Peter... 2 verse 9, it says that each of us are God's priests. Each of us are ministers. The old folks are ministers. And the babies are ministers. Did you know that? So baby James, who's just born, he has no idea what's happening at all, but he's actually a minister according to the Bible right now. Not when he's 20 or 30 Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we cannot contribute until we are a certain age. And nowhere does it say we cannot contribute after a certain age. 
Think of the different ages in church. I think of the times when I went to the older folks in the church when I wanted to gain wisdom from their experience. I think of the times I was inspired by young adults who were all fired up and full of ideas and energy. I think of the times when I've struggled as a father and I looked at another parent my age who's, who also had kids who said to me, I know what you're going through. It's hard, isn't it? I think of the times I've felt useful as I've mentored those younger than me. I think of the times I've been energized by children as they asked me questions, listened to my stories, and made me realize that the world is actually way more interesting than I thought it was. I think of the times when I've held a baby and the peace and the joy and the gratefulness that comes over me as I think about how God must Think of me. Babies are ministers. I was born in 1977, so I'm a a survivor. I'm Generation X. I came into the church at the age of 15 because of the youth at my local church were friendly and accepting, and I'm so thankful. But out of the entire youth group who God used to bring me into the church, I can only think of one of them who is still an active Christian. I believe the rest left. You see, when the traditionalists, according to research, were young, they tended to just emulate those who came before them, no questions asked. When the baby boomers were young, If there was disagreements, they would get angry and and they'd fight back when they weren't treated well or if they saw any hypocrisy or injustice. But most Gen Xers are a bit similar to the millennials in that we would just leave. Gen X is a pretty passive-aggressive generation, and there's reasons why we are like that. There's reasons why every generation behaves the way they do. And it pains me to say that some of those who brought me in to God's grace don't believe in God at all now. And a few of them were pastor's kids. Can I get everybody who is under the age of 25 years old to stand up? So so kids, do this as quietly as you possibly can. Anybody who is under 25, stand up. Everyone else, listen up. This is a painful fact. Statistically, 60 to 70% of them will leave the church. Maybe even the faith. Is there anyone here who is willing to choose statistically which ones are going to go? You guys can sit down. Has Jesus died for every one of them? Yes. What are you going to do about it? As a parent, that statistic terrifies me. To be honest, I can't mentor my kids on my own or with my wife's help. And the research shows that no parents can do it. We need other people who are not related to us to help with mentoring and discipling our kids. 
Who here is willing to take a stand and help us parents with mentoring them? I spent two years leading a church that was made for young adults. And I was trained as a youth and young adult specialist. And I thought it was going to be the dream job. But you know what? It wasn't. At least to start with, it wasn't. The church was struggling to survive. You see, young adults are great. If I were to pick a favorite group, it would be young adults. Sorry, everyone else. I love hanging out with young adults, but here's the thing I learned. A generation by themselves cannot survive spiritually. A church made up of one generation has very little survival chances spiritually. You see, with this young adult church, there were very, very few older people to mentor anyone. I had to mentor my whole leadership team, which is something you're supposed to do anyway, but I had to teach them how to be deacons and no one knew how to do anything because there was no one older who showed them how to do it beforehand. They didn't know how to lead out in church because there was no one older in the church to teach them. They were mostly university students, so they didn't have much money to give. University students are broke. (laughs) They don't have much money. And whenever any of them got married and had kids, they would leave our church. You know why? Because there was nothing for the kids, because everything was just about young adults. And that also meant they didn't know how to mentor anyone younger than themselves because there was no one younger to mentor. And I want you to imagine for a moment what a potluck looks like if university students are the only ones contributing. Yeah, they did need boomers. They needed a lot more people. If, if, if they brought something, if they brought something, it was a bag of chips and cookies. We had to teach them, okay, you bring a can of beans, you bring some tomato. Like, it's not re- I mean, I like chips and cookies, but it's not really a meal, is it? And it taught me something. It taught me that every generation needs people older and younger than themselves. It taught me that no generation can stand alone. We needed older people in that church. People with experience. People who could show the young how to walk with God. Because it's one thing for someone to preach stuff. It's another one to actually show practically how does that look like. We need older people who are willing to spend time with the young. I've been to churches where the old people were told from the pulpit, you're too old to contribute. I'm sorry, that's rubbish. We need you older people, and I'm so glad that you're here. So many people don't have older family members who can lend a hand. We need you as loving grandparents in the church. To those who are older... I'm 45, so I'm sort of edging in your direction. But there's one thing when I've talked to older people in my research, there's one thing that comes up that they all tend to think about. 
What can I do to leave behind a legacy? Legacy is a huge, huge thing as you get older. Because here's the thing, unless Jesus comes before we die, we are all going to die. And so I know that each of us would like to think that we've contributed in a way that's bigger than ourselves because that's the only way we can continue to live when we've died until Jesus comes back. Can I encourage you, older people, to look at those younger than yourselves as people who can be part of your legacy? Mentor those around you. Encourage each other. Don't think of that being negative is doing anyone any favors. Share your authority. If you're an adult, share your authority. Teach the young to be responsible by giving them responsibility. I've had some people say, oh, no, they're not responsible enough to have that job. How are they supposed to get responsibility if no one gives them responsibility in the first place? It's like those who say, oh, you can't work here unless you have experience. But I don't have experience. How do I get experience to work here? It's the same thing. Get younger people to serve alongside you. Not just tell them how to do things, but actually work next to them. We were all young once. Let's be the older person that we wanted to have who was not there in our life when we were young. Let's be that person who was missing that we would have appreciated. Let those who are old dream dreams and those who are young have visions.